us pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that we can come before you uh, with joy. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which is eternal, settled in the heavens. And so now, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, your Holy Spirit will teach us not just what we need to know, but, Lord, how to apply your precious word, eternal word, living word to our lives. So, Lord, lead us and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a question this morning as we get going here. Who loves to hear stories about their ancestors? Yeah. Some of you are really involved in the genealogy thing. It's great. It's good stuff. And I know at least one person really loves these kinds of things and does research because I had lunch with him the other day recently. And he told me fascinating stories about how he tracked down his relatives even as far back as around the 17 and 1800s. So that, that's, that's pretty good sleuthing, I guess. But for me, my family is so fractured, as in my in nuclear family, my, my mom, dad, etc., that I wouldn't really know where to begin. But one thing I really love about being a Christian is that I am part of a family, an eternal family of God. It's great. And in many ways, closer than my blood family, uh, my cousins and grandparents and, and those, those kinds of folks. Now, of course, kiddies are my kids and grandkids. They are the, the love of our lives, and uh, we love them more than anything else. And we celebrated in grand style yesterday. Twelve of our, twelve, right? Did I say twelve? Twelve of our grandkids, thirteen, somewhere around there, maybe Baker's dozen, whatever, yeah. Yeah, a lot of them, a lot of them. And, and we celebrated a grand birthday party in grand style yesterday. It was a really, really cool thing. And Kathy and Kathy, for you who and all of you guys who prayed that the Lord would hold off the rain till our festivities were done, the Lord answered your prayers with a yes. So it was a great thing, yeah. Although it was very hot, uh, it still was good, yes. But in our passage for today, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 1 to 25, we're going to hear stories about family relationships between brothers and cousins and even giants thrown in for good measure. No kidding, giants. But the stories that we're going to be hearing about and are recorded in this scripture are not just to reminisce about the brothers and the cousins. Moses telling these stories about his family serves as a valuable illustration and even a backdrop to remind them of the Lord's faithfulness to Israel, even including brother Edom and cousins Moab and Ammon. So today we're going to hear Moses as he recalls stories of his kinfolk in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. And then he's going to inform his warriors about the Lord's renewal of their mission to levy judgment on the Amorites and to deal with the giants in the region in verses 24 and 25. So let's listen in as Moses tells the stories about his kinfolk, beginning with Edom in verses 1 to 6. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days, we traveled around Mount Seir. And Mount Seir, if, if you don't know on the map, is about uh, 10 miles to the east of Kadesh, Barnea. Then the Lord said to me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward, and let me add, eventually northward, because there's some things that the Lord wants them to do, and, and he has an assignment for them. Turn northward, 
And because you are going to pass through, about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you also shall buy water from them with money that you may drink. And so far, so good. The Lord gave Moses directions of how to interact with his brothers. But who were the brothers? Who was Edom? Well, they were Jacob's brothers. They were descendants of Esau. But why were they called Edom? Remember the story back in Genesis and how Esau despised his birthright by selling it to his brother Jacob. Now, one would think that would be a pretty valuable thing, pretty high, high price. What was so valuable that he would sell that? Well, what did Jacob offer? Well, it was a bowl of stew, red lentil stew. And as we know, the word Edom, or many know, the word Edom means red. And so, in other words, for every Israelite, every time Edom is mentioned, they think red. They think Edom, despiser of the birthright. But recall the rest of the story. Jacob did his brother wrong, and he knew it. And he was sore afraid of his brother Edom. Jacob left home to pay his uncle Laban a visit for a long time. And after the angel of the Lord wrestled with Jacob all night and changed Jacob's name to Israel, along came Jacob's brother Esau to meet him. For years, they had not spoken to one another. And miraculously, Esau, or Edom, seemed to want to make amends with his brother. But over the years... Things didn't get exactly peachy cane with them. Their relationship still was not very good at all. And now, at a time when Jacob's brothers needed Edom, needed Esau, what did they do? Well, Numbers chapter 20, verses 18 and 20, tell us what happened. But Edom said to him, when they got there, when they, when they sent a, a messenger over there, it says, can we pass through your land? Edom said to him, you shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, we're going to go up by the highway, and if we drink your water, I am my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not Pass through. And Eden came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. And in the famous words of Gandalf, you shall not pass. And he said it twice for emphasis. And so what did they do? They had to go around Edom's land. But how interesting, as we just read in Deuteronomy 2 that this little vignette was not mentioned here. Why was that? Well, simply speaking, it was to highlight the hero of the story, of course, and he was the hero of the story. God is. He's a hero of every story in Scripture, true? Moses could have brought up this old wound, how Edom wouldn't let him pass through the land. He could have strengthened a grudge against the family members, but he didn't. 
Even though Edom refused to supply Israel with what they needed, Moses reminded them of the blessing and the reality of God's provision in Deuteronomy 2, verses 7 and 8. He says, for the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord has been with you and you have lacked nothing. And so we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Edath and Azion Gibber. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab around Edom. And so Israel went around Edom right across the top of the Red Sea. And what they do, they went around, they headed north on the east side of Edom. And such is the story that Moses recounted here of their encounter with the brother, Edom. And so now let's hear a little story about two sets of cousins, Moab and Ammon in verses 9 and 13 through 19. And the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I've given Ar, which is the northernmost town in their, in their territory, in the town of Edom, or Moab, I should say, to the people of Lot for a possession. In other words, your relatives, sons of Lot, own this land. So just go through the land, just pass through to get to your destination, where I want you to go. So let's now skip down to verses 13 to 15. Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered and crossed the border, separating Edom from Moab. And from the time of our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. This, in a nutshell, is the story of God's faithfulness to keep His Word, to keep His Word of judgment and discipline to His people. Once again, God told His people, you will die in the wilderness. Of course, not everyone, but those who should have gone in to take the land, they were the ones who were going to die in the wilderness. And why did they do that? They listened to the scary spy stories that they brought back from the, when the spies went into the land and looked it out and looked at it. So for us, it's a time for a little bit of a lesson here. In short, we need to be careful about what we hear. Remember the story. The 12 scouts were sent into the land. And the Lord didn't really seem to mind that so much. But the 12 came back with, with assessments of what they experienced while they were in the land, scoping it out. Not all 12 scouts came back with scary moments. Ten of them did, but two of them did not. And after they stated the facts of what they saw, Caleb and Joshua both said, in essence, listen, guys, we can eat these guys up. They're our food. They're like cake for us. We can take them. The Lord has taken away their protection. We're going to wipe them out. But, you know, it takes real discipline, doesn't it, and real wisdom to wade through what's false and to cling to what's true. The ratio does seem to be about right, doesn't it? Ten horror stories about what is scary and wrong with the world and two stories about what the Lord is doing and the reality 
The choice is ours. What, and most importantly, who do we believe? And like I mentioned last week, when it came to those spies, the natural emotion of the people, when they heard those stories, it was sheer terror. Therefore, they obeyed, uh, they failed to obey the Lord. The Lord's assessment was they failed to believe Him, and therefore, they, they failed to obey the Lord. The difficult truth is that fear does not let God's people off the hook when it comes to doing what God wants them to do. Remember Jesus' warnings and various spiritual facts of life when he gave these words to his disciples. For example, I think of Luke 12, 5, he says, to his disciples, he says, don't fear those who can only kill the body. And after that, there's nothing more than they can do, but rather fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. He told this to his disciples. He also told this to his disciples. He said in Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. This is gentle Jesus. This is protector Jesus. This is loving and kind Jesus who said, I, your shepherd, am sending you as sheep in the midst of where? Now, last time I checked, what do wolves do with sheep? Yeah. Jesus says, I'm sending you out there to be my representatives. Not exactly a safe place to be a disciple, is it? Hear God's truth through the Apostle Paul addressing his people as spiritual warriors in Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And in 1 Corinthians 15.58, he says, My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. But back to Moses. Verses 16 to 19 in chapter 2, Deuteronomy. He says, So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead among, from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of their land, the people of Ammon, for a possession, because I've given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. Moses told his people, go north from Edom over into Moab. And when you get there, later on, don't harass the Ammonites either. And the land of Ammon belongs to your relatives, the descendants of Lot. But in between Moab, and Ammon, there is the land of the Amorites. And we're going to talk about the Amorites in a bit. But to sum up here, Moses recounted their journey around Edom, through Moab, and up to and through Ammon. They were going somewhere. They were on this trip. And, and the destination where they were headed was probably not as we would think it would be. And we're going to see this next week, what they were going and what they were up to. But who were Moab and Ammon? They were the sons of Lot, of course. But who was Lot? Lot was Abraham's nephew. Where did he live? He lived in Sodom. But he and his family had to make a hasty exit out of Sodom because of a little sulfur rain shower. Remember that? And I would imagine, you know, if, if PTSD were a thing back then, that maybe Lot probably had exhibited some classic symptoms 
we remember his story back in Genesis again. Scripture tells us that Lot was righteous, and even though he was, he chose to make his home in a place that wasn't exactly safe. It probably was not a wise choice to bring his family there to Sodom. He first moved close to and then actually lived in Sodom, and he settled down among them. And though righteous, Lot's soul was tormented by the wickedness of those who lived in that town. And God took note of the wickedness. And one evening, a couple of angels paid the town a visit. They were on a mission. They were trying to make a a moral assessment of the area to see how wicked it really was. Indeed, it really was as wicked as it was reported. The angels told Lot to get his family together, quickly leave, and not look back because they were going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and a bunch of other cities around. And by this time, Lot's two daughters were betrothed to be married. Now, Lot tried to warn these guys of impending doom, but they thought that Lot was joking, and they were swept away in the destruction. And apparently, Lot had no godly influence on these guys or not much godly influence on his wife either because we remember what happened with Mrs. Lot. You know, the angel says, don't look back. But what does she do? She looked back, and she became a pillar salt. So when all this was said and done, what did Lot have? He didn't have a whole lot left, did he? He had two daughters and very few possessions. And Lot was totally traumatized, so much so that he was afraid to go live into towns. In any town, he didn't want to live there. But now think about this. If you were Lot and you had experienced this, what would you do? What would you think? How would you feel about this? I think I'd kind of go away too. And it seems as though Lot's, Lot wasn't the only one suffering from what I would think would be maybe PTSD. Looks like his daughters had a touch of this as well. See, since all three of them, they actually lived in a cave and they were away from civilization thinking that they were safe. They had no neighbors to speak of. And a lot of fear welled up in the hearts of Lot's daughters. And so what was their fear? Their fear was how to preserve the family line. And so what to do? Well, get dad drunk, have him perform the role of a husband with them. Let the reader understand. And the children of these unions were Moab and Ammon. What a tale of fear, but what a tale of grace. See, even though the Moabites and the Ammonites... Moab and Ammon, began this way. God gave them their own parcels of land as sons of Lot. But the Lord ultimately blessed them because, why? They were related to Abraham. And as a quick grace-filled sidebar, we think about Ruth, for example, Ruth's story, the one who was in direct lineage of, of the Messiah. What was her nationality? She was a Moabite, Moabitess. Exactly. And so even though Moab and Ammon were conceived under, shall we say, less than ideal circumstances, the Lord recognized and even blessed the sons of Lot. Why? For the sake of Abraham. So what do we have so far? We have a reintroduction of Israel's relatives. Not exactly 
a fine lot of people, you think? Family members complete with all kinds of foibles and failures and less than a stellar lineage. But all are related, not only through the family of Abraham physically, but even much more importantly, through covenant. See, God made a covenant with Abraham and he promised all the families of the earth will be blessed, beginning with his own relatives. And so a lesson for all of us as well. In the family of God, we come from all different kinds of, and, and walks of life, don't we? All kinds. You know, different kinds of social economic classes, all kinds of ethnicities. But through Christ, all of us are one family. In Christ, we have one elder brother. His name is Jesus. And family relationships are what we are to be about. Remember what Paul told the Ephesians? In Ephesians 4.3, he says, maintain, be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All who have repented of sin and embraced the gospel of Christ are in the family of God. And let's treat one another as the spiritual siblings that we are, regardless of class, regardless of status, and regardless of the shade of melanin. And now that Moses called to mind their cousins who descended from Edom and Lot, it was now time for him to help them remember God's mission that he had, he had wanted them to accomplish, a renewal of the mission, as it were. And so in verses 24 and 25, we see the Lord, through Moses, recommission them to attack the Amorites. Verse 24, rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon, the northern border, and that's where Arnon is, is the northern border between Moab and the Amorite land. Behold, I have given into your hand Sion, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and the fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall, when they hear the, of the report of you, and they shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So now, again, this is great. The Lord has entrusted them again with a military assignment, a campaign. But what was the mission the Lord had given them 40 years prior to this? The same thing. It was to destroy the Amorites. God was intent on using His people as a military instrument of judgment. But how can that be now? Especially, they have been barred from God's land for these 40 years. Well, over the years, apparently, Sihon, the Amorite king, reestablished his headquarters in Heshbon on the eastern side of Israel, of, of, the, of the promised land. But whether in the land or out, God was still faithful to his promise of judgment on these people who refused to repent. All people were under, are under his authority, and all people are answerable to God. And that was true back then, and it's true now, and it will continue to be true. Am I right about that? Now, not only was God going to use His people to punish a wicked nation, God was going to set or to make a statement through His warriors. The warriors of Israel were to be so ruthless against their enemies that no one would dare to go up against them. Dread and fear were the words. 
terror or tremble and be in anguish were other descriptions of how the people were going to be viewing the Israelite soldiers when they thought about tangling with them. But it was not Israel's military prowess. It was not their modern technology, at least the modern technology back in the day, or sheer numbers of warriors that would bring them such devastating, lethal success. See, later on in Deuteronomy, we're going to discover Moses' assessment of how great and how powerful, I put these in scare quotes here, of how powerful the people are. No, it was not Israel that was to be highlighted here. It was to be Israel's God and how powerful He is. But, you know, it seems as though the Lord delights, doesn't He, in showing His power to puny humans who mock Him. Think David and Goliath. Who's the hero in that story? It wasn't David, right? Think about the 185,000 Assyrian soldiers who were put to death by one angel in one night because Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, mocked Yahweh. Psalm 2, verses 1 to 6, describes the Lord's attitude toward the wicked who need a little attitude adjustment. Please turn there with me, if you will, as we're going to see these words. I love these words about the Messiah and about the Lord and about how He controls the nations and what He thinks about all the terror of the nations, you know, and, and their military prowess and their ang anger and their arrogance. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. Against who? Against the Lord and against His anointed, His Messiah, His Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. What does God say about this? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He cracks up. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So with God now renewing the, the assignment to have his warriors judge Sihon and his Amorite army, there was now work to do. God was going to glorify himself through his stubborn people. And over the course of 38 years, God entered his next generation soldiers into a little battle-hardening training in order for them to be able to accomplish the mission he gave them to do. See, the previous generation's hearts were melted. They refused to face the giants. They had no strength to battle the Amorites. And so for 38 years, the Lord prepared the new generation to not only face the Amorites, who then would have become, as it were, small potatoes, militarily speaking, but even to confront giants, as we're going to see next week. See, God's intention was to use His people to cleanse His land, His space, His sacred space that Yahweh Himself set aside for Himself. Because the Amorites were not just only in Heshbon, they were still in Yahweh's land. See, Ammonites, again, they were still there. This was Yahweh's sacred space, and he wanted them cleansed. He wanted that land cleansed. He wanted the Amorites out. And so how could this nomad gaggle of people go up against the hordes of wicked nation states? Well, in part measure, it was by psyops, if you're familiar with that term, if you're military. 
psychological operations. Because he says this, God says this through Moses. He says, this day I will begin to put the dread and the fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. See, God was going to work through his warriors so mightily and using the tactics of the army that Israel was, was going to just obliterate the enemy. And Israel's enemies, they would not stand a chance, and their minds were set. I can't go up against the Israelites. But it worked both ways. The warriors of Israel needed military victories. They needed to engage in the battle. Their hearts needed to be strengthened. And the Lord gave to Israel Sion and the Amorites as their first military campaign. And now they were ready to fight after all this training. But we need to leave Israel's clash with the Amorites right here until next week. Now, attacking the Amorites was not the only military campaign that the Lord had on his mind. See, God's plans included the Rephaim. Let's take a brief look at these verses that talk about the Rephaim. It, they seem to be really, a, really out of place here in this passage. So let's look at verses 2, uh, 10 and 11 and 20 through 23. Regarding Moab, we find in verses 10 and 11, the Amim formerly lived there, a people great and many, as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Amim. That's kind of strange, cryptic, isn't it? In verses 20 and 21, in relationship to Ammon, it's also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzamim. I practice that. People great and mighty and many, as tall as the Amkanakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place. Let's lump these names together here. Anakim, Rephaim, the Moabites called the Rephaim Amim. The Ammonites called them Zamzamim. Who are these guys? In short, they are part of the spawn of the union between the sons of God and the daughters of men mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. Now, how do we know this? There's a couple reasons. First, when the 12 scouts came back and gave their report in Numbers chapter 13, we read this. The land through which we have gone to spy it out is the land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who had come from the Nephilim, and we seemed like ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So what does this tell us? What everybody took as common knowledge back then was the Anakim, as we just talked about, descended from the Nephilim, and who, again, were the Nephilim. They were the spawn, okay, of the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6. Make sense? I see a couple of thumbs up here, all right? Now, we might be thinking, so what? What does it have to do with anything we're talking about here? God's wanting to cleanse his land. That's the issue. And here we're going to, I'm going to be introducing again Mike Heiser to you as 
as I've done a couple of times. According to his research, the most, almost universally, the Jewish mindset, the understanding of Genesis 6 of the daughters or the sons of God is these were the watchers. These were the watchers. These, these sons of God were embodied evil spirits. Okay? They were embodied evil spirits. These watchers are described in a book of Enoch. It's, it's a book that people were familiar with. They were reading. And here was the description of these watchers. They had one thing in mind. They wanted to corrupt people. They taught the people the art of war and how to kill one another very effectively. Drug abuse, sexual immorality were a couple of the other very nice, pleasant things that they were teaching the people. And so to sum up, the spawn of the unions of the sons of God and the daughters of men were the Nephilim, they were the, the Anakim, they were the Rephaim, which the Moabites and the Ammonites refer to as Emim and the Zanzamim. All these, in other words, these are the giants. These are the ones that were wicked and evil. And so again, what's going on here? Why did Moses include these creatures recounted in his story? For a couple reasons. First, wickedness in the spiritual realm is not only a New Testament concept. Wickedness in the spiritual realm is Old Testament as well. I mentioned a little bit ago how that we as Christ warriors, if we're Christians, are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We're to put on the full armor of God to prepare to successfully wrestle against whom? The authorities, the principalities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Spiritual warfare is real. It is real now. It was real back then. Second, these evil creatures, what we would call demon-possessed, were real. They posed a real threat to real people. And to the Lord, getting rid of the Rephaim was a big deal. And we're going to see the Lord task His warriors to actually go after these giants, these evil creatures later. And so what can we take away from this story today? Moses retelling his, their stories, part of the treaty, again, they were making with Yahweh. Are there some things that we can apply to our lives from this story? Certainly. Paul told the Romans that whatever was written in former days as in Israel's history, was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the Scriptures, we might have hope. So let's see how the Lord can give us hope as well, a confident expectation that His grace is truly sufficient for us, and that He might strengthen us for the mission that He has for us. First, let's remember that the Lord barred His people from entering His land for 40 years do their disobedience, he did not put them on the spiritual shelf. God was angry at the disbelief of his people, but instead of setting them aside on a spiritual shelf, he worked for 38 years, helping them, honing them, training them to get them where he wanted them to be. And when God deemed them to be ready, he told them to move into position to engage in the battle. Remember verse 3, of Deuteronomy 2 today. He says, at the right time, the Lord told Moses to get their things together and move out. It was now time to fulfill the mission. 
And for us, let us never believe the enemy's lie that God permanently puts his people on the shelf. How many people, how many times have you heard this? Well, you know, I missed God's call and now, you know, God doesn't have anything for me to do. I hear this all the time. That's wrong. That's a lie from the enemy. See, the primary call of God for every person is for salvation. If you've answered that call for salvation through repentance of sin and embracing the gospel of Christ, what has God been doing in your life and mine? He's been honing you. He's been honing us. He has been training us. He's been getting us to where He wants us to be. And though it took Israel 40 years, they still got there. So what is the mission that God wants you to accomplish in your life? What is the mission He wants me to accomplish in my life? What does God want of you and me as followers of Christ, as learners of Christ, as students of Christ? What does He want of us? Let's allow the Lord Jesus to answer that question. He tells us in Luke 6.40, He says, A disciple, a learner, is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be what? Like his teacher. In short, it's not a great ministry with worldwide impact that the Lord wants from us, though some of us will have that. But far and away, more important than even a worldwide ministry is for us to be like Jesus. That's it. That's it. Jesus simply wants us to be what He has created us to be. And when Jesus came, He came to be who He was, no more and no less. See, the night before Jesus was crucified, He gave His disciples a deep look into His heart. And here's what He says in John 14, 31. He says, I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Did you catch that? The things that I do, I do these to let the world know that I love the Father. From day one, the Lord Jesus had exactly one thing on His heart and one thing on His mind. Obedience to the Father to let the world know that He loves the Father. That's it. He laid the challenge before us as well. That very same challenge in John 14, 23 and 24. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. And so the bottom line for us is simple. Obey the Lord because we love Him. That's it. This is what completely motivated Jesus, the Son of God. His love for His Father resulted, though, in a cross. What will obedience to the Lord in your world look like? Perhaps it means spending more time with Him. Valuable time that you need to take away from something else to do this, to spend time with Him. You may have to let some things go to make this happen. Maybe it's taking a more forceful stance on certain issues in your sphere of influence, letting your voice be heard or your pixels produced. For others, it may be a less forceful stance 
as you realize the person that you're speaking with is a fellow imager of God, whether he or she is a Christian or not. Maybe you need to clean up a few things in your life to show yourself and others that you obey the Lord because you love him. To clean up things in our life simply means this, that we apply the Christian's bar of soap to our heart. We know what that bar of soap is, don't we? It's 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9, as we know, says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Obviously, to confess means to repent, a turning away from the sin that you agree with God about. Confess, repent, believe that the Lord has forgiven you. Then ask him to take control of your life. It's as simple but as profound as that. Obey the Lord because you love him. So my question is for all of us, where are you falling short this morning in your obedience to the Lord because you love him? He wants to strengthen you. He wants to strengthen me in these areas toward Christ's likeness in our lives and those things. Remember Paul's words to the Philippians in this regard. He says to the Philippians, 2, 12, and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now work out, exercise your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And so Moses, in essence, reminded the people that the Lord never abandoned them, even though they grievously sinned against him. And we can have the same confidence as well. Let's obey the Lord because we love Him. He does not abandon His people. Second, it's been, that, it's been said that we can choose our friends, but we are stuck with our family. Isn't that true? Indeed, like Israel, God knew all about Edom. He knew all about Moab, and He knew all about Ammon. And all were related, not just by blood, but by covenant. And my question for all of us who know Christ how did you come to know Christ? How did you come into the family of God? By grace through faith, right? How about your, if you're married, how about your husband or wife that you sometimes don't like? Or that fellow Christian who hurt you by his or her words? Perhaps your brother, your sister who sinned against you. That person is your sibling. That person came into the family of God by grace through faith too. Isn't that true? The bottom line here is that the Lord Jesus has given you salvation if you're in the family of God, just like everybody else in the family of God. It's been said that we can't produce eternal or pronounce eternal salvation on anybody. And we can't say, well, you're a Christian, you're not a Christian. We can't say that. But what we can do is inspect fruit. We can be fruit inspectors. Let's inspect one another's fruit, not to play gotcha, Okay, you, have you ever played gotcha with somebody? Has, have they played gotcha with you? You know what that's like, don't you? We don't do that, but we inspect fruit out of our love for one another, for the witness of His church, and for the glory of Christ. And though we can pull many, many more applications from this story, let me pull out just one more. Spiritual reality, spiritual warfare is a reality. They, the, the forces in the heavens are much stronger than we are. To quote Mike Heiser, unfaithful spiritual beings 
which are called Elohim, are not Marvel comic characters. They are real. They are true forces to be reckoned with. And regardless of how we feel about our unseen enemies who are stronger than us, we must battle them. Like Israel, we're not allowed to play the fear card. We're not allowed to play the I'm unskilled in spiritual warfare card. We must battle them. Let's believe the Lord what He tells us. Greater is He that's in us than He that's in the world. We engage the enemy from a position of strength, and Captain Jesus has won the victory for us. And we can defeat the enemy when we are on our knees. Now, this does not mean that spiritual warfare is easy by any means. There is a reason why Paul told us to take up the full armor of God. Let's don the armor that He has given us. And so as, last week, as we did last week, we, we saw the, uh, the countdown video, and we, we remembered the, the lyrics from that, from that song. Let's do the same thing this week. The Gettys played the countdown song. And so I want us to, I, I want to quote these lyrics to remind us again of God's call to us that we might be faithful to Him, the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. O church, arise. Put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. And Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Come see the cross where love and mercy meet as the Son of God is stricken. Then see his foes lie crushed beneath his feet, for the conqueror has risen. And as the stone is rolled away and Christ emerges from the grave, this victory march continues to this, till, this, till the day every eye and heart shall see him. So, Spirit, come and put strength in every stride. Give grace for every hurdle that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of His grace. We hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. Amazing, amazing. Let's pray. Lord, today we want to praise you because you are the captain of our salvation. We praise you that you never give up on your people. Lord Jesus, when you hung on the cross, all of our sin was placed upon you. And those of us who, in the sound, under the sound of my voice, those of us who have repented of our sin and placed our faith in you and want to follow you the rest of our days, Lord, we know that you are going to strengthen us for the battle. We know that you're going to strengthen us to make us like you. And so, Lord, today, help us to remember 
what you did with your people in the days of old. Help us to remember, Lord Jesus, what you've done for us in securing the victory for us. And help us to remember the words of the apostles, especially of Paul, who tell us that we need to take up the full armor of God, put it on, because we wrestle. And that wrestling is intense, it's difficult. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have placed within us your spirit. And your spirit is greater than he who is in the world. So Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the instruction. And we ask, God, that you give us the strength to obey you because we love you. We thank you for these things. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention to our giving, we pray that you'd help us to give from a heart that's overflowing and full of gratitude for what you have done for us. And I ask, Father, now as, as well that as we sing, that we'll sing as a result of, of, of having you being in our minds and our hearts. Lord, that we will sing with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as an act of worship because you alone are worthy. So, Lord, help us to love you, help us to serve you, help us to love you more and to serve you better because you love us first. In Jesus' name.